morning and welcome to Rising. We've been working very hard on planning a fantastic show for you today. And when I say we, I mean the fine folks who help write, script, find guests, etc. We got a couple really good guests today. We haven't had a lot of guests lately. No, but we are more than making up for it with a roster today. Yes, we don't have to hear the sound of each other's <laughs> voice quite as much today. Let's get some fresh faces in here, Robbie. <laughs> All right, what's on deck? Uh, well, up first, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows reportedly took the stand in a Georgia courthouse yesterday where he lobbied the judge to move his charges from state to federal court. Meadows has been charged along with former President Trump and 17 other alleged co-conspirators in relation to their push to overturn the state's 2020 election results. Now, the judge has yet to set uh, to issue a ruling in, on the venue change, but should the case turn federal, Meadows can assert immunity and get the counts dismissed. To switch courts, Meadows must convince the judge he was a federal officer acting under the color of such office. Meadows reportedly said on the stand yesterday, I don't know that I did anything that was outside my scope as chief of staff. Now over on CNN, the former chief of staff to Mike Pence explained why he doesn't see that legal argument cutting it. I think that uh, it's probably true that uh, Mark was acting at the behest of the president. And I think he does deserve uh, the benefit of the doubt there as far as what he was doing. But I do think one challenge for him is to say this is all my official capacity. If that was true, then why was he circumventing all of White House counsel's advice? Why wasn't Pat Cipollone involved? Why wasn't that team involved? Why wasn't DOJ involved? Instead, Mark recruited outside lawyers who he wanted to listen to. And so I think that undercuts the notion that this was all part of my federal responsibility if I'm not getting counsel from the people who were hired into your office to serve the White House in that role. It is very interesting to hear the perspective of Mike Pence's uh, chief of staff, someone who you know, whatever you think of his politics or if you think that Mike Pence should have gone along with the scheme and all of those kinds of things, is the most analogous position to Mark Meadows to weigh in on whether or not he was acting in the scope of his uh, responsibilities. What do you make of the argument that if he were really acting in, in the scope of his responsibilities, he wouldn't have cut out so many official White House, House staff and staffers and lawyers who were giving contrary advice to what he and this increasingly narrow team of co-conspirators we're doing. Yeah, this is where the uh, the Hatch Act comes into play mm -hmm. uh, because government employees can't um, engage in partisan political activity while also serving, while also doing their official capacity. Obviously, in reality, that distinction is pretty messy and pretty slippery, and probably. Uh, technically violated here and by a lot of other government officials in a lot of other roles. So. Yes, I think the argument that uh, Mark Short was making there is probably a good counter argument. At the same time, you know, I, I, I read, I obviously didn't watch the hearing, but read um, the uh, Washington Post report of, of what Mark Meadows was arguing during the hearing. And look, again, he is, you know, entitled to a presumption of innocence. He, what he's saying is that, look, I participate in these calls. I had no choice but to participate in these calls as chief of staff. Um, I wanted to verify, he said, I wanted to verify that, you know, I wasn't pushing a, the election was stolen agenda. I was trying to verify that everything was kosher so we could have a transfer of power. And I had to be part of these calls, but I, I was not furthering some scheme. And I had, I had some questions, a lot of other things I didn't agree with. I was not furthering some scheme to prevent the transfer of power from taking place, but rather the opposite. Again, the, it's on, it's the government, the people prosecuting him have to make the case that that's not true. He went beyond that and was actually part of some scheme to deny the election. He says that he, you know, he wasn't really 
he wasn't he, he was working in his official capacity to verify everything so that the transfer of power could take place and we could have faith in the election. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think the problem with that is the choice to not listen to the most official Trump hired attorneys within the uh, Trump administration to, you know, when you read the indictment, there was a threat to fire uh, more attorneys that was only stopped by the rest of the Justice Department basically saying, if they go, I go. Um, the the cherry picking of legal advice suggests not genuine ignorance um, of what the overwhelming thrust of legal analysis was telling you it was true, but a choice to have a certain outcome and to find lawyers that would enable that choice. So you go from having your entire—again, this is during the Trump administration. This isn't a liberal scheme to the extent that Trump didn't like the people who were around him. It's because he made bad hiring de decisions and, you know, from his own perspective. But they were all—person after person after person was telling him it was fine to investigate allegations of fraud. It's your responsibility, even, to investigate allegations of fraud or any evidence of fraud. But when we found, we found none, we're telling you we have found none, you lost this election. And to go from all of those kind of esteemed attorneys within your own administration to relying on, basically, Rudy Giuliani, who is now your co-conspirator, as one of the few attorneys who are willing to tell you what you want to hear, I do think that is an, an increasingly less credible argument. There was this other argument that the Washington Post charts out um, what happened in this in this um, testimony, that the Trump campaign was suing Raffensperger at the time, and it was being characterized as a settlement negotiation. You know, we weren't trying to influence the election on the call with Raffensperger. I was doing this in furtherance of the settlement negotiation. And at this point, the judge, the, the Washington Post writes, appeared skeptical of that argument and asked their own question, saying, was there any discussion of settlement negotiation on the call? And Raffensperger replied, um, uh, uh, no. <laughs> um, so I, I, I don't know. I, I, my, my bigger question of this is twofold. One, I think the question of whether or not he's going to be able to get into federal court is an interesting one because it's, it sets a precedent for all of the other people in the case. Um, and part of the value from the prosecutor's perspective is the state charges not having the same ability of Trump to pardon people. So you're going to be able to get people to flip more easily if you keep it in state court. So there's one thing that's interesting. Well, and a lot of it is protected if it goes to federal court. Yeah. Because then he can argue right. it was, you know, and the scope security. Of his, right. Yeah. This, the second question is whether or not having these increasingly detailed conversations about the character of the alleged scheme is going to start to penetrate the national consciousness in a way that broad hand-waving to the riot on 1-6 doesn't seem to have changed many people's minds about whether Trump himself was culpable as opposed to random people in a crowd who might have been driven by ops or what have you. Right. Or, or I guess, I mean, it could make people even more alarmed of the scope of this indictment that it is, you know, not just, not actually rigorously focused on verifiably criminal action or, or actually acts, but just conversations that people were part of, including Mark Meadows, you know, reading, again, reading what he has to say in his participation of the call, his his participation in this call. Again, maybe there's a lot of other stuff. Maybe he was talking to people in other, you know, uh, contexts that more obviously involve wrongdoing. But if I'm just, you know, weighing in or reflecting on Mark Meadows' role in this one call, this doesn't look like enough for a criminal indictment to me. But That's interesting. I think there's a lot more. But and I know that um, watching conservative media, there is no 
engagement with the idea that if you, if you were looking for fraud, if you thought there were fraud and you thought that the vote tally was wrong because of fraud, I think the question would be asking Raffensperger, well, what, you know, how many votes with this, like, what is going on there? What, you know, how many votes of this nature that don't match up? Like, what, tell, you tell me what the numbers are. You tell me what the evidence is. The idea of calling somebody up and said, and saying, find me the votes. I mean, I know we've talked about this ad nauseum, but I have a really hard time imagining that that is a choice of words that one would use when you think that there's some unknown number of votes out there that the experts in the state need to go through versus I don't saying I don't care what you do I don't care what it takes come up with a gap between me and Biden so that we can say that I won this state right I think he but well I don't know he has to make his defense for that he'll say that um he was told or he was informed again by people who are not credible this is not a, a question of whether he's right or not he's clearly not right that he had actually won by that many votes and that they were out there and they'd not been counted. Well, no, he didn't say, I, I think I won. I'm being told that I won by 1,532 votes. So where, you know, why aren't you counting those votes? He says, I, I, I'm currently losing by 1,542. That's not the real right. number, obviously, but 1,542 well, votes. He, so find me 1,543 he, votes. He's saying you have to find at least that many to show, to demonstrate, to demonstrate that the person what? who actually won this state has right. won it, you from have, his view. You have to find votes that there's no evidence of having been cast. Well, That's the problem. There is no evidence, but again, it goes down to his sincere belief that they but, did but, exist but based on bad advice he got. There's a conversation about, like, I see these votes were cast. These, ca these votes weren't counted because of hanging Chad. These votes weren't counted because mm -hmm. we found them in a dustbin and right. a trash can. Like, point to the evidence that there are votes that weren't accounted and be arguing about why those should be counted, but well, that, that wasn't the, the nature well, of the conversation. Well, I mean, that, but him and his surrogates, they were doing that. It's just that they're saying, oh, look at, you know, look at this video of ballots right. being taken. Yes. This is a, this and is Trump's, an uncounted, and, and right, none of that panned out, right. but you and can't Trump's say they weren't lawyers, pointing to actual I'm, things. But I'm talking about what happened in the call, to the extent that he brought up some of those things, Raffensperger and, uh, you know, pointed out, there's no evidence that that happened. That isn't true. Ravensburger has said in many, many yeah. times since then, there was no evidence of any of that being true. So if you're being told that, but again, this isn't a big liberal hoax by your own like Republican electeds in various states across the country who have also testified that they would have much preferred that Donald Trump win the election. They didn't like being put in this position, but the reality was he just didn't. So now Donald Trump and his co-conspirators have to explain why they would not have taken the own advice of their own counsel and every expert that was investigating fraud, all the lawsuits that they filed across the country to try to make this come out in their favor. They were going to ignore all of that and lean, put persistent pressure on. Remember, Raffensperger recorded this call because it was not the first of the calls that he had gotten from the Trump administration where they had been leaning on him to change the election result, well, to find I, votes. So, I mean, the, gov no, the government has to prove that what they were doing was in furtherance of a, you know, with awareness that they had lost the election as part of a conspiracy to prevent the transfer of power to Joe Biden with you know, actual, uh, with the forging of documents or the assembling of fake electors or all that stuff. The government has to prove that. They, j them just being wrong, manifestly wrong, like super wrong about what happened in the election is not, is not right. enough. And, and there's a lot of that other stuff, too, including in the context of this Raffensperger call, threats of the kind that uh, the 
Virgin Islands uh, representative made toward Matt Taibbi that you could face Trump threatened Raffensperger, so you could face criminal charges for being wrong about this, not agreeing with me about this particular issue. So, of course, we'll continue to follow this and see how that all pans out. Stick around. We have more Rising for you right after this. In the latest Emerson College polling, 4% of registered voters said they'd cast their ballots for Green Party candidate Dr. Cornell West in the 2024 presidential contest. Here with us now is Dr. West himself. Welcome to Rising. Oh, it's always a blessing to be here with both of you all. And I apologize, I misplaced my glasses, but I hope I have insights that I don't need my glasses for. <laughs> well, we are happy to have you join us in any condition. Thank you so much for being here. First off, right off the top, want to get your reaction to something Senator Bernie Sanders said about your candidacy. We're going to play this uh, clip from him and then have you react. Um, let me ask you about Cornell West. He was a co-chair of your campaign in 2020. He's flirting with a Green Party bid for president. Um, the numbers tell the story between 2016 and 2020. Um, you can directly correlate the two third party major candidates, third party candidates, their collective total. Um, that was the difference between Biden winning states and Clinton losing those key states. Uh, are you trying to discourage Cornell West from running? Well, I've known Cornell for many, many years. He's a very independent minded guy. He will do what he wants to do. Uh, I just think, again, uh, I think Cornell or anybody else can play an important role now about raising uh, issues that are not always discussed. But at the end of the day, I think the progressive community in general and the American people yeah. have got to make a decision as to whether we stand for democracy or authoritarianism or whether or not we're going to yeah. represent working class. What? What's your reaction to what Senator Sanders says there? Oh, no, I think that Brother Bernie's being consistent. You know, he said that all along, and I can understand the argument. I think it's a plausible argument. I just don't think it's a persuasive one. I think that the argument he's making means that there's never any possibility for breaking from the corporate duopoly. There's never any possibility of trying to speak to the needs of poor and working people. I'm fresh from Mississippi, as you all probably know, there in Rankin County with Brother Jenkins and and, and Brother Parker, I was there, the precious Mary, mother of Jenkins Mary, uh, and those lawyers down there, Brother Malik and Brother Trent, they are dealing with issues that the Democratic Party won't touch, which is issues of poverty and intense police brutality. And we haven't even got to the military adventurism abroad. So I think in many ways, Brother Bernie's making a plausible argument, but I think deep down in his heart, he knows that the Democratic Party has no fundamental intention of speaking to the needs of poor people and working people. They are dominated by their corporate wing. They're dominated by the militarists when it comes to foreign policy. And that he and AOC and the others are going to be, in a certain sense, window dressing at worst and at best people to appeal to every four years. But the Democratic Party is beyond redemption at this point when it comes to seriously speaking to the needs of poor and working people. Yeah, I, I would tend, tend to agree. I, I do think that there's this argument that's very persuasive to a lot of voters that says, 
Well, yeah, I, I don't think the Democratic Party is going to do anything more than to maintain the status quo. I completely agree with the critique that it's a corporate party. It's why I potentially supported Bernie Sanders in 2016 and or 2020. But D Donald Trump does present an existential threat, and therefore I'm going to bend the knee at the end of the day and vote to prevent him from getting a second term of office. And, Dr. West, this was a position that you took ultimately in 2020, uh, going ahead and voting for Joe Biden. So can you help us understand— uh, how, why it is that you feel differently now, and 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 you know how things have changed if they have? Well, I think we've reached such a low point in the nadir that either we go for broke and try, in fact, to, to reshape most the political system. It would be nice to have rank, rank priority voting and, and proportional representation. That would be a positive thing. Democratic Party has no interest in that whatsoever. It's clear that Biden and company have no serious interest in trying to scale back on the militarism abroad. They have no serious interest in trying to really make poor and working people a priority so that Bernie's argument, and again, I love my brother no matter what, but Bernie's argument is there's never time to break. And the, part of the, the paradox here, my sister, is the neo-fascism that's escalating is predicated on the rottenness of a system in which the Democratic Party facilitates that frustration and desperation because it can't present an alternative. And if the system, if America is unable to present an alternative to the Democratic parties in the end, then we're going fascist. Yeah. We just need to acknowledge that because we're going to go sooner or later, it's going to go back and forth. So we've got to have some kind of break or at least raise our voices and tell our precious citizens the truth about our condition. The 63% of our brothers and sisters of all colors who are citizens who are living paycheck to paycheck as the beginning. Now, Brother Bernie understands that. Don't get me wrong. He's on he's on my side in that sense. But, but, but at this particular historical moment, he's on the side of the Democratic establishment rather than the critics of that establishment trying to generate an alternative. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think that some people are also wondering, you know, whether or not your candidacy is the type that is endeavoring to bring certain issues to the foreground, as Bernie characterized it, um, saying that, it, yes, it was important to be talking about progressive issues, those kinds of things, but that you might ultimately not be willing to take this through to the end because of concerns about spoilers. In fact, uh, progressive editor-in-chief at Current Affairs magazine, Nathan J. Robinson, recently suggested, quote, if I were Biden, I would be inviting Cornell West to the White House and asking him to submit a list of policies he would take in exchange for dropping out. Again, framing this as purely a um, leverage opportunity as opposed to a, a sincere effort to take this to the finish line. Journalist Glenn Greenwald responded to Nathan Robinson's suggestion, saying, sorry, but Cornell West is way too smart, sophisticated, and experienced to be bought off by some craven White House pageantry and empty gestures and promises made by a Democratic Party that is enslaved to its donor base and neocon doctrine of endless war. He's not Bernie or AOC. What do you say to that? Which, which one of these men is right? Is there, should people be concerned that they don't want to get behind you because ultimately they think that this is a symbolic campaign and you're not willing to actually go through the general election? No, I think Glenn is right. I think Glenn is right. I think the first option we've seen with Brother Bernie at the highest level, I mean, Bernie remains a historic figure in terms of at the presidential historical level, being able to galvanize a serious progressive uh, following. It's just that in the end, I was on the platform committee. We brought all the pressure and power we could to the Democratic Party to no avail. 
It was symbolic and it was over. And once they moved into power, we were taken back to the caboose on the Democratic Party train. And I think that's just, you know, that's that's the way the Democratic Party is. It's so tied to Wall Street and war that uh, in the end, it's not going to seriously speak to the people I'm concerned about, which are the poor and working people here and poor and working people abroad. What can we do to get more, uh, you know, competition in our political system? The two-party duopoly is so powerful and, and forces a lot of people on the Democratic side, people like Bernie Sanders in the squad, to fall in line because there's no, you know, there's perceived to be no viable alternative. Um, and obviously, the you know, the electoral system, everything about the system creates and rewards and reinforces the two parties. Um, what can what can we do to make third parties stronger and more viable? And and is is that part of your candidacy? Is making a pitch for for systemic uh, for for reform to the system to strengthen the possibility of third parties in every direction? Absolutely. And that's, I agree with that in regard to the Libertarian Party and a whole host of other parties, namely that we've got to have ranked choice voting. We need proportional representation and we need to abolish the Electoral College. And even if we did those, we still need campaign reform. As long as that big money is poisoning our political system, in increasing the corruption, making it difficult for high quality candidates to emerge. Isn't it interesting? Look at all the magnificent, intelligent, imaginative fellow citizens, and we end up with these milquetoast, mediocre politicians of both parties. There's a hemorrhaging taking place, a major hemorrhaging taking place. And most Americans understand that. And as my brother put it, Cliff, he told me the other day, he said, corn. He said, I think you're the best candidate. I support the best candidate, and they view you as ending up supporting the worst candidate? Is that the best that America has to offer? And I said, well, Cliff, let me think and pray on that, brother. That's a powerful point. That's a powerful point. So you have to end up supporting a mediocre milk toast Biden? Please. Are you confident that Biden's going to end up being the nominee? I was reflecting on 2020 and remembering that uh, Bloomberg didn't get into the race until November of 2019, many months out. And he was perceived by some to be a last-ditch alternative to Bernie-style candidate who was able to sell fund. Obviously, he's one of the richest men in the world, uh, who could be a stopgap measure if, if Biden didn't take off, if Bernie seemed to be really um, poised to take it, to make sure that there was still a corporatist uh, heading the Democratic Party. Uh, are you— confident, given recent polls showing that uh, Joe Biden uh, is going to lose to, Trump, uh, lose to Trump, regardless of whether or not you're in the race, but especially if you're in the race, that there will be an effort to replace him as the Democratic nominee? Mm. Yes, you know, I was there with Brother Bernie in Nevada when it was clear that we were on the way to victory. You know, Obama makes the call, all the other neoliberals drop out because they want it anybody but Bernie, and some of them want to Trump over Bernie. So it's clear that they want a neoliberal rule, which is to say they want this class war to continue against poor and working people in the name of diversity and equity, whatever whatever language they come up with. And so it's true that Biden might not be able to make it, and they'll try to bring somebody else in. And for all we know, Trump may not be the candidate. You know, he may be on the way to jail. It's hard to say. We live in real time. And it's hard, it's hard to know what's going on in this election. No label, what a, what a title, no label. Why are you gonna be a party with no label? What you stand for, please. But that's that's just a footnote. But no, the no label brothers and sisters, they may make their, their move too. We shall see. But the important thing is 
poor and working people must have not just a voice, but they must be galvanized in a movement. This is this campaign is a moment in a movement to try to create conditions under which the corporate priorities and the imperial policies abroad are radically called into question so we can have the empowerment of those slash stone call everyday people. That's 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 precisely what this campaign is about. You've mentioned calling into uh, question, yes, the, the the foreign policies of the current administration. Uh, I, I know you've spoken out against uh, the Ukraine war and our funding, our military funding, the weapons we're sending. On the Republican side, obviously, we had this debate last week where most of the candidates supported what the Biden administration is doing in Ukraine. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy did not. Ron DeSantis was uh, so, so, somewhat did not. Their their views, you know, in keeping with what a lot of libertarian and leftist anti anti-interventionists want on that specific question, and also what Republican uh, you know, primary voters say they want. You, pr you survey Republican voters, 70% of them said, we have sent enough uh, weapons to Ukraine. This is not making things better. What do you make of the, you know, the, the transformation that's taken place where the Democratic Party establishment, the administration, is wholeheartedly supporting this, uh, this uh, intervention there, and so many, so many people in both parties, but so many active Republican primary voters speaking out against that. Maybe that's part of the bipartisanship and the agreement of both parties that I'm calling into question. And even when you have Republicans who are critical of foreign policy in Ukraine, they still want America to be the empire and they want all other nations to defer to America. I don't want America to be an empire. And I'm an, I'm an anti-imperialist. I want America to be a decent, dignified nation among nations. So my critique of what's going on in Ukraine is, is not just a, a, an agreement about a war, but it's about the role of the United States in trying to shape the whole globe in its image and using NATO as one instrument among a whole host of other instruments. Now, I am also in solidarity with my Ukrainian brothers and sisters. I don't want people to ever think that I downplay that suffering. Not at all. That's why I, bring, I want to bring the war to a close. That's why I want a fair diplomatic process and so forth. But at the same time, this is a critique of the American empire. This is not just a critique of isolated war. Democrats have been the party of war. That's why Martin Luther King Jr. broke with LBJ. Look what LBJ was doing for poor people. It was a marvelous movement, war against poverty. But Martin King said no, no. And in the end, those bombs dropped in Vietnam are going to land on ghettos and barrios and reservations and poor white communities. Brother Martin was right. We know that 60 years ago, yesterday, when he was when he was talking about we need a fundamental change in our priorities. He's absolutely right. That's my tradition. That's Fannie Lou Hamer when I was down in Rankin County this weekend with Malik and Trent and, and Brother Kareem and Brother uh, Coach Campbell and others to see the humanity and the dignity of these poor folks still undergoing unbelievable police brutality, unbelievable poverty, and yet fighting back. See, that's the best of America. That's Rabbi Heschel, that's Edward Zaid, that's Dorothy Day. That's the best of America. We have a tradition in our own country that connects with indigenous people and women and gays and lesbians and precious trans and black folk and brown folk, not in a narrow neoliberal identity politics, but in a profound human sensitivity to the suffering of the least of these, the most vulnerable, those who are pushed to the margin. That's 
seems to me, you know, that's what it is to try to be a decent person with integrity before the worms get your body. Yeah, if I could just, as I'm reflecting on what I think makes you compelling to certain people in a political context and beyond, it is, I think, your constant kind of re, uh, centering your, your, your views, your beliefs on this idea that there is a strength in the shared needs uh, and values of poor and working class people, regardless of race, color, creed, and all of those kinds of things. And you paint, you, you talk in a way that's very sympathetic and frankly loving to even, even your political adversaries um, in a way that I think really models what a lot of politicians say they care about as they say, we need to be less divisive. We need to find a sense, I think Vivek recently um, said we need a sense of national identity to bind ourselves together because we're so racially diverse and things like that. Um, and I, I wonder what you make of uh, the kind of gap, it seems, between certain rhetoric that says we don't like to be divisive, but which will characterize, let's say, um, a disagreement with a uh, uh, um, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley about how to talk about diversity as describing her as akin to the Ku Klux Klan, the members of the Ku Klux Klan, especially coming out of your recent trip to Mississippi. I don't know if you had any thoughts or feelings about the nature of racial rhetoric in this country post Jacksonville shooting and in the light of some of the rhetoric that we saw out of the GOP debate last week. Yeah, one might be assistant. I appreciate that question. But our discussion about race is just so impoverished and it's just so shallow uh, and it's so empty that we, if we can't begin with the precious humanity of all of us, no matter what color or gender orientation, and then keep track of the very ugly and vicious structures of white supremacy, and the structures of male supremacy, and structures of homophobia, and structures of anti-Jewish hatred, and anti-Muslim hatred, and anti-Arab hatred, and so forth, then we're going to end up just that moving pawns and making these crazy, just uh, asinine, uh, obscene analogies between the clan, killing folk, lynching folk. Look at Emmett Till. I was there with his family. You know, that 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 is barbarism at its highest level. And then the response of black people is Emma Till's mama. I don't have a minute to hate. I will pursue justice for the rest of my life. That's a spiritual and moral achievement that I'm not going to create a, a black version of the Ku Klux Klan. That's the level of humanity and morality. And I would even say spirituality that we need. And it comes in a, a number of different ways. The secular forms of that Muslim forms, and Malcolm X says, I'm for truth, no matter who's for it, I'm for justice, no matter who promotes it, I'm a human being, I'm a black man, I'm a Muslim. It comes in Martin Luther King Jr. and Martin and, and, and Fannie Lou Hamer. There's a number of different traditions that keep that human connection, and that's what we're losing. That's what we're losing, and we lose the human connection in the end. What is it for anyway? That's why I use the musicians all the time. You see my John Coltrane here? You see that? That, that Bill Evans on the piano with Miles Davis's quintet, he's not a white ally involved in identity, connection with black folk. He's in the band. And if you got folk in the band, they're in the band to struggle for truth and justice, no matter what color they are. Black Clarence was in Bruce Springsteen's band. He wasn't a black ally in the band. He was in the band, a gray playing drums and Sly Stone. 
they in the band. It, being in the band is being on the love train, being part of the justice train, being concerned consistently, but acknowledging we're always going to disagree. That's why I can disagree with Brother Bernie and still have him as my brother, but we're on different sides at this particular election. Same would be true who, with anybody else, feminists, black nationalists, we can go Marxists and so forth. If we overlap in the foxhole, and that's the crucial point. You see, when you get in that foxhole, you just don't want ideological correctness. You want folk who really care for the people. You don't folk. You don't want folk just talking about justice in the abstract. Any justice that's only justice soon degenerates into something less than justice. You got to care for the people. You got to love the people. And some of us are willing to live and die for the people with a smile on our face. Because what the people have done for us is beyond language, beyond words. That begins with mom and dad and Shiloh Baptist Church and the Black Panther Party and a whole host of activists who shaped my life. Mm. Dr. West, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it and we hope to have you back again soon. But I always salute you all. You all doing a wonderful job. I tell you that. <laughs> thank you. Indeed. Thank you so much, have Dr. West. We'll see whether I, I catch up with my glasses. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, we wish you luck on that for certain. <laughs> <laughs> A whopping 77% of Americans think President Biden is too old to be an effective leader if reelected. That includes 89% of Republicans and 69% of Democrats. This Associated Press NORC poll released just yesterday found voters really not happy with either 2024 frontrunner. When asked to recall a word that describes former President Trump, respondents said corrupt, crooked, bad, liar. For Biden, they called him old, outdated, slow, and confused. Here to help us parse through these findings is friend of the show and a former host, Bacha Angar Sargan, who is currently an opinion editor at Newsweek. It's so nice to see you, Bacha. We miss you. It's so nice to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me back. Absolutely. So, you know, this is a situation we're discussing a lot. Trump, Biden seem cosmically destined for some rematch. Obviously, there are some things that could confuse or put that on hold. But if it is what it appears to be another Biden-Trump contest that so many Americans of both parties dissatisfied with, um, how, do we, how do we get ourselves here and not get ourselves here? I know. It's really staggering. I was so totally wrong about this a year ago. I was like, no way. It'll never happen. And I, I believe both of you were sort of <laughs> better prognosticators than me. And <laughs> a lot of people sort of saw this coming down the pike and I was not one of them. Um, it is amazing that it looks like we're going to have that rematch if things you know, hold steady as they seem to be. Um, obviously, the DNC, I mean, Brianna, you went through this with Bernie, just like the refusal mm. to allow for any kind of dissent within their ranks. Um, and now it looks like Cornell West may very well play spoiler to Biden, and they still will not consider any kind of alternative to, to their chosen to their chosen candidate. And then on the right, um, I, I mean, I, I think on the right, the problem is, um, maybe less sort of overt corruption and more just that 
the return of the old pre-Trump Republican Party that was, you know, Chamber of Commerce, free market, free trade, um, that that has that's been waiting in the wings. Um, it's just all coming right back. Every single one of those candidates on the debate stage, um, you know, answers to donors who really did not like the kind of economy that Trump built. Um, and so that that just seems to be like they were refusing to admit to themselves where their voter base is. And their voter base has just moved on from that. And that's how you end up with uh, Biden and Trump. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you say that, because I think Vivek Ramaswamy got a lot of praise for being perceived as not going along with the kind of pre-Trump version of Republican politics, at least when it comes to foreign policy. And then Nikki Haley, who also saw the biggest gains uh, from that debate, similarly stepped out of line in, in so far as that she was willing to critique the Trump administration's um, economic policy and previous Republicans' economic policy as driving the deficit that so many uh, Republicans hammering about as they continued to do things like pass the uh, trillion-dollar tax cuts that Trump passed that normally went to benefit the top 1 percent. So it does feel like there's still an ongoing battle about the, the soul of the Republican Party, if you will. But I, I want to come back to this question of, of what the specific, specific poll is, is telling us. Trump is being—the the, the headline here is, no one likes that Biden is old. Fully, I, I got that. But there's also this other similarly intractable characteristic of Donald Trump that is pulling him down in these polls, too, where, what, three or four times more people identify Donald Trump with being corrupt, uh, a criminal, a liar, than they do Joe Biden. Joe Biden isn't getting any younger anytime soon. Donald Trump with these four <laughs> indictments isn't getting any yeah. less criminal anytime soon. So how do you think those—, those And Trump isn't getting any younger, and Joe <laughs> Biden's not getting any less corrupt, because you can associate the words with each sure. other, too. Sure. So where do you see this heading over the next year or so? Well, so looking at the poll, it looks like 26% said that, you know, tr they called Biden old, outdated, aging, elderly, and 15% called him slow, confused, bumbling. And if you look at Trump, you know, just 15% called him corrupt, criminal, or crooked, and another 8% called him a liar, dishonest, untrustworthy. So, you know, those are, I, I mean, I think those are pretty small numbers. Only 15% think he's corrupt and criminal. I mean, after 91 indictments, you can only get 15% of the, of people to come up with the first word being corrupt, criminal, crooked. I think that's kind of a win for Trump, to be honest. I, I would have expected those numbers to be much higher. I think a lot of people, if you look at the polling, the majority of um, Republicans even, I believe the largest share of Republicans, believe that Trump behaved in a way that was not great, unbefitting the office, what have you, that he did things wrong. And yet a majority of them also plan to vote for him. And what I make of that is they think his behavior was unbecoming but not disqualifying. And I think with, you know, there's sort of two ways to look at 91 indictments, right? You can either say 91 indictments, surely this man has done one of those things, right? But you can also look at it and say 91 indictments, like surely these people are just coming at him for the sake of it and will not stop until something sticks. And I think a lot of people with every additional indictment move from the first camp into the second camp. I mean, that's sort of been my experience talking to people. Um, you, you can even find a lot of Democrats to be like, it, it seems like a little bit much, right? Especially compared to how the criminal justice system works in mm -hmm. other situations. So um, I, I think that that's kind I, I, I do think that this poll kind of 
like you have many more people who think Biden is too old than you have people who think Trump is too corrupt. Seems to me just reading these numbers. Well, to be clear, also, only 26 percent, if we're going to do the raw numbers here, you said that 15 percent, only 15 percent find Trump to be a corrupt criminal and crooked. It's only 26 percent that find Biden to be too old. So still a very, like, an overwhelmingly small minority of people compared to the voters overall who would come up with those kinds of terms. But, well, Florida Yeah, and just to, to can I, I, I just want to add to that. I agree with you, Brianna. In fact, I, I think the idea that Biden is too old is ridiculous because you're not really voting for a president. You're voting for an administration. And Biden's administration is the exact administration that if President Obama had a third term, he would have. I mean, everything that President Biden has done, you, you cannot point to a single policy that President Biden has enacted that is, you know, unique to him as opposed to the Democratic Party. And so I'm sort of with the I really think that this focus on him as an individual. Yeah, it's embarrassing when he makes gaps. But to me, that's kind of like Trump's tweets, like it's totally irrelevant to the policy he's enacting, which is very, very typical for for, for a Democrat today in 2023. Sorry, uh, Robbie, I interrupted you. Well, I was just going to say that, so the argument against Trump that DeSantis is making, for instance, is all about um, his his apparent perceived non-electability. Um, DeSantis uh, got into this recently when we asked to make an affirmative case, you know, for his candidacy. He said, even Trump can't win, and even if he does, he would be a lame duck on day one because he has, you know, every everyone against him. Also, he put in people that were bad, and I wouldn't do that because I, like, care more about this and I'm more cautious than he is. Um, you know, a lot of that makes sense, but, of course, the overall is someone like DeSantis actually more electable than Donald Trump is kind of an open question. And you see some polling to indicate both things. We were actually just talking about some Emerson College polling that has Trump ahead of Biden right now. Of course, a lot could change before then. Um, look, I, I kind of understand. It, it's hard for me to imagine Donald Trump winning more voters than he won last time, convincing people who didn't vote Trump the last two times that, you know, I, I wasn't for Trump before, but I'm for him now, especially more so than people he's lost. When I, you know, when, when you talk to me, obviously anecdotal, when you talk to people, it sounds, you're, I am more often to run into, not just like in D, the DC bubble or the media bubble, but just like real people back at home, et cetera, more people who supported Trump and no longer support him because they're sick of him than I see people who didn't support him before, but are now coming on board. But if Joe Biden is so unpopular or his policies are so unpopular and he has people who don't turn out for him in such great numbers who turned out for him previously, I that could make Trump the more electable candidate, not because he's reaching some new person, but because people are so frustrated with Joe Biden. That's my that's my view. Um, I, I, I do know people who have been so upset by the the level of um, what they see as political persecution that they now say, I've never voted mm. in my life. I'm voting for Donald Trump. I think also, you know, 5,000 men were released from prison who will be able to vote. It's not it's a small number, but it's them and their families. And it's very hard to imagine anybody released under the First Step Act not voting for Trump. I mean, especially people who were put in prison by Joe Biden. Right. Um, so I I, I I do think hmm. there are pockets here and there. It's very hard for me to imagine my, myself into the position of like, you know, the suburban voter, who the swing voter. But um, to me, the tragedy is that um, you look at polls, you do interviews with working class people. There's so much consensus 
in the working class on policy um, and and neither party represents them. So, for example, you know, the majority of working class people want Medicare for all or some kind of national health care, including uh, conservative working class people. But they also want something close to a total moratorium on immigration, legal and illegal. So th who should they vote for? Right. I mean, not, no one is really looking to where that massive consensus is there. They, they, they say I, I'm against abortion. I wouldn't get an abortion. But they are so against abortion bans like they no, don't eat, get that away from me. Like the idea that you wouldn't trust a woman to make that choice for herself, like that's gross to them, too. So they're sort of both pro-life and pro-choice which party should they vote for so there's just a lot of there's just a lot of consensus and both parties picking and choosing but no one really willing to come out and say i'm gonna make i'm gonna have an agenda and but if you look at trump's agenda i to me and to a lot of people i've spoken to it comes the closest insofar as he has the economic piece creating an economy that works for the working class but he also you get the sense from him that he's a social liberal right i mean he keeps saying stop talking about abortion like this is a losing issue for us he's seen as very pro-gay i think he is even though he is sort of more um, suspicious of the sort of more trans piece of that which is where a lot of americans are so that i think is the tragedy is like people are forced to choose between two terrible options yeah well i, I think that people like lindsey graham arguing from the republican party that there should be a six-week abortion ban is causing people that you describe as having this kind of middle stance on abortion feel much more comfortable voting for Democrats who are have nobody in the Democratic Party who wants something like that to happen. And I do think that post-Roe, there is this question of how far will the Republicans take it, because they claimed for so long that they weren't going to take this to the state level uh, and start to impose abortion bans there, that it was just going to be a Supreme Court federal level issue. And we've seen a very uh, different um, course of action in the, in the wake of Dobbs. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Fun to see you guys. If a general election rematch between presidential Biden and former President Trump took place now, Trump would win. Emerson's August polling shows that in a hypothetical matchup, 46% of respondents said they'd vote for Trump, 44% said they'd vote for Biden. Now with Green Party hopeful Cornell West added to the mix, 44% would go for Trump and 39% would go for Biden. That's a five point drop for the incumbent. Not everything is coming up sunny for the dawn, however. Following this month's GOP primary debate, Trump's popularity amongst the GOP primary field dropped by six percentage points from a poll conducted the week prior. Looking at the Emerson polling on other GOP candidates more closely, 27% think Vivek Ramaswamy won the debate, while 21% think Ron DeSantis won, and 12% think Mike Pence won, 11% think that Haley won. Haley saw the largest increase in support among Republican candidates, jumping five points from 2% to 7 As for the Democratic contest, 61% contest, of primary voters support Joe Biden, an eight-point decrease from the poll week prior, while 12% of voters support Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Marianne Williamson has 4% of the voter support, leaving 23% undecided. Joining us now to break down the latest Emerson poll is polling director Spencer Kimball. Welcome, Spencer. Thank you for having me. All right. So first and foremost, how much confidence should we have in these kinds of polls, um, especially given how far out we are from the election, uh, the, the primary, of course, but especially the general election? Yeah, certainly we're, uh, what, 13, 14 months out from November 2024. But I think what's important to look at here 
is just the state of the race and some of the movement that happened over the course of the last couple of months to the last couple of years. Remember, Biden wins this election in 2020 by four and a half points. So we would expect to see the president uh, in his reelection campaign doing a little bit better. Uh, it's interesting to see him trailing Trump. Remember, the Republicans haven't won a national election uh, since 2004 when the popular vote. And so it'll be interesting to see if the Republicans are able to uh, return, uh, reverse those fortunes. You know, the midterms, the 2022 midterms went, uh, I, I think, better for Democrats than was widely expected by the pundits, at least. I'm, I'm not sure if maybe the polling reality was a little off as well, but it suggests that there's something um, a little unmeasured about Biden's base of support. You know, we, we talked in the past about shy Trump voters. Uh, is there such a thing as a shy Biden voter or a Biden voter who's somehow not captured by polling or punditry? Yeah, I mean, I think you don't have to look any further than the 2000 election. Remember, Biden loses Iowa. Then he goes and loses uh, New Hampshire. Then he lost Nevada. We haven't seen a presidential candidate do that really since Bill Clinton in 92. And now he's able to bounce back in South Carolina. So I see Biden as really a, a late break. And so in these poll numbers, there is a group of voters on the sideline uh, that are undecided. But what I'm not seeing in those voters is that they kind of make up the Biden base. They're not necessarily just younger or minority voters that really propelled Biden. They're kind of split across the electorate at this point. Yeah, in fact, uh, with younger voters under 30, I saw a poll a couple of weeks ago that put Marianne Williamson and Joe Biden almost neck and neck with respect to that particular cohort. Of course, that cohort tends to be um, tends to vote in, in smaller numbers than older voters. Uh, let me ask you about this other part of the poll where most people perceive Vivek Ramaswamy as having won the debate, although uh, Nikki Haley saw the most gains from the debate. How do you parse the utility of the um, won the election, uh, sorry, won the, won the debate number, if at the end of the day it doesn't necessarily translate into gains for you in the polls? Yes. And so that's the question about these debates. What's the impact of them? And so what we've noticed here is that Trump lost five to six points in his overall support. And where did it go? It didn't go to one candidate. It wasn't like Haley picked it up or Ramaswamy picked it up or DeSantis uh, or even Pence. It kind of got spread out suggesting that the Republican field, even without Trump, is very splintered. And what's going to happen over the course of the next couple of weeks or months is that a clear alternative will either emerge and take on Trump or it'll continue to be splintered, in which case Trump will have a very strong position with at least plurality support. You know, Trump skipped the debate saying he doesn't need to do it. He's so far ahead, et cetera. Um, you know, with the fact that he lost six points, you know, whether it goes to one candidate or gets split or not. Do you think um, that maybe that sends a message to Trump or the Trump campaign that sitting out of the debate was was not a good idea, if it's going to gradually cause him to, uh, you know, erode support and have that? I mean, he, he's fortunate if it if it's, you know, diffuse and spread amongst various candidates rather than like all going to DeSantis or something. But still, it's a loss of support. Yeah, um, and really, I'm not surprised by this because we saw this in 2016 when he skipped the Iowa debate before the Iowa caucus. We had him up by like eight to 10 points. Then, boom, it was a tied race. He ends up losing the Iowa caucus. And so skipping these debates, not necessarily that they were all, you know, gung ho for Trump, but it kind of opens up voters minds and saying, well, I could go with this candidate now and I could go with that candidate. And so I think it did weaken Trump to some extent, more so than the indictments, actually, at this point.
Mm. Let's talk about the uh, Green Party uh, aspect of all of this. Uh, many people on the left make the argument that Green Party votes don't actually have a spoiler effect because the people who are voting Green are largely so disaffected that they would not vote for a Democrat under any circumstances, although these poll results uh, do seem to suggest that some votes are being taken by from Biden since the gap between uh, he and Trump, Trump's victory over him broadens with Cornell West in the race. Uh, what, do, what do you know from all of your experience and pollings about the, the substantive effect of having uh, third-party candidates, be they, be they libertarian candidates, which are often not a part of this conversation for some reason, even though many more people vote for libertarian uh, candidates than Green Party candidates, and of course the Green Party? Yes, and, and we have the no labels movement as well, moving right. forward with potentially a, a candidate. But in particular, the Green Party, we can't forget Jill Stein in 2016, and I'm not arguing here that the Green Party is going to win the election, but in states that results are going to be 10, 20,000 votes, that's where a 3 4%, 5% to a Green Party candidate would cost, in my opinion, the Democratic candidate the election in this case. Uh, we're seeing that vote is polling from minority and younger voters, and that's part of the, the Biden base, not the Trump base. And so with the Cornell West candidacy, that's something to keep an eye on, particularly for the Democrats. Uh, we'll see if maybe the no labels have a reverse effect on the Republicans. Uh, we haven't really seen that yet in our numbers, but we definitely have seen West pulling that vote. And that's something that Biden's going to have to secure to get uh, reelected. I, th I think I can recall seeing, you know, higher poll numbers for the third party candidates, the Green Party candidate, the Libertarian Party candidate over the course of campaigns. And then those numbers start to come down uh, right before the actual election. And then and then the, then the overall totals are, are lower than what, you know, people are polled and they say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to vote for a third party. I'm really open to it. And then the, the closer it gets, the more, you know, mentally to people, it seems like a zero sum contest. And then in the end, they do a lot of people do, uh, even who, who signaled willingness to go third party. You know, I say this as a third party voter myself, you know, who's often hoping for a, a good outcome for the Libertarian Party. And there, you know, there have been some better outcomes than uh, in, in in recent cycles. But not, it's not the ten percent that the you know the, the polling suggests at one point. It's still like one, two, three percent. Yeah. Well, first, with the third party candidates, they're all trying to get to that 15 percent threshold to get on the debate stage. And if you remember Gary Johnson in 2016, he was very close to getting to that threshold until he had his foreign policy moment that he didn't you know, do well on and basically melted away. And as you said, there is lots of melt on third parties where they say, and right now we're going to be seeing what I would call a scorched earth campaign if it's Biden versus Trump. And in that race, people are kind of turned off and they'll say, well, I, I don't want either one of these candidates. I'm going to go with the third party. But on Election Day, as you mentioned, they will come back. And so there is that element of surprise for Biden where he is trailing. But if that vote does melt away from the third party, I think it goes back to Biden and not towards Trump. It's also worth noting that a lot of Green Party third party voters, and I'm sure Libertarian third party voters as well, are eager to get to the 5% threshold where they get federal matching funds. That's a huge uh, real yes. uh, consequence yes. of voting third party, despite being told frequently that doing so causes you to waste your vote. Thank you so much uh, for joining us and walking us through some of these numbers today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks again for having me.
Democrats are scrambling to appeal to early black voters, a constituency the party will need to rely on when it comes to squeaking out a win for President Biden in 2024. One Democratic strategist told The Hill, quote, the barrier here is not how do we make them like Biden. The barrier here is how do we convince them that government works? President Biden continues to laud his administration's achievements for the black community, but Fox polling from 2020 and 2023 shows his popularity among these voters plummeting, while Donald Trump has seen a substantial boost. Here to discuss further is co-host of Revolutionary Blackout Network and co-host and host of the Savvy Savs podcast, Sabrina Salvati. Welcome, Sabrina. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So uh, do you buy, you know, the administration's claims that everybody including everybody in the black community, should just be all fine and dandy with how things have turned out? I do not. Um, I think that I have heard more from uh, black people that they're not willing to just cave over and vote for the Democratic Party this time around. I think that poll is very telling. This is the first time, at least since I've been eligible to vote, where I've seen 20 support 20 support from African Americans for a Republican presidential candidate. So Donald Trump's support among African Americans has actually increased compared to where it was in 2020. And I think the Democratic Party should be very concerned about this. I think this idea that uh, Donald Trump is 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 scary and I'm I'm just not convinced that that message about Donald Trump is going to work with black voters this time around in 2024 the way that it did in 2020. And I say this because uh, during 2020, that was a chance when we were like, well, we could have a Biden presidency and it could be different compared to how it was with Donald Trump. Well, now we've had both. We've had a Biden presidency and we've had a Trump presidency. And a lot of African-American voters feel that economically not, their life is not improved and it's actually become worse under Joe Biden presidency. So I think that the Democratic Party should be very concerned because they cannot win without African-American uh, support. And this could turn the page, I think, in reference to we look at electoral politics and where people stand, uh, African-Americans stand in reference to the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. So we could see a change here. Yeah, I mean, it feels a little like uh, Joe Biden is the victim of his own 2020 rhetoric, where he was very explicit about how much he needed the black vote to win not just the presidency, but the Senate uh, in Georgia, and made very specific and targeted uh, politics to both people in Georgia and to black Americans uh, on the whole, including setting a one-year deadline for himself to pass the George Floyd Justice uh, and Policing Act, which, of course, We've now, we're now blown, what, two years past that deadline, two and a half years past that initial deadline he set for himself. Um, obviously, canceling student debt is not something that happened, but people tend to forget that he specifically said he would cancel all student debt uh, for graduates of HBCUs. We have not seen that. Instead, we see an HBCU being targeted earlier this week, uh, where, where black people, black students in particular, were, were targeted to be victims of hate crimes only because that shooter was not let in in Jacksonville. Did that not end up being the case? Um, we obviously had the whole rigmarole over the amount that was promised in the checks that didn't come to fruition. And, and in the backdrop of all of that, I'm seeing a new stat showing that only 2% of black millennials make over $100,000 a year. And obviously $100,000 is twice as much as the American average, but those are also very small numbers compared to other groups. So what do you think that Biden might have to show? Uh, is, he, is it possible for him to show anything to the black community at that point that would give them confidence that he's able and willing to follow through on whatever campaign promises he makes this time around? 
I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure that any changes that he makes right now would actually change people's minds for the people who said that 20 percent, for example, that said that they support Donald Trump. And the reason why I say that is because this isn't just about Joe Biden. This goes back to other Democrat presidents that have not fulfilled their promises and have not tried to help uh, the black community. That includes Barack Obama, who was a big disappointment for a lot of African-Americans in this country in reference to where he stood with helping people in the black community. Joe Biden really doesn't have a black agenda. And I think that's important for people to understand. It's one thing when you're running for president, you make these promises and then you don't fulfill them. And the Democratic Party for a long time, they have pandered to the black community. When black people are asking for certain policies to be passed, they say the right rhetoric when they're running their campaigns, but once they're elected, they ignore the black community. In fact, I feel like we're the only group where the Democratic Party actually panders this much too, and they just don't fulfill these promises. So it was only a matter of time that eventually black people are going to look at both parties, and I think they should look at every party and independent candidates as well and say, is this really working for us? So I think going forward, it may be a little bit too late for a Biden presidency because we saw this with Joe Biden, we saw it with Barack Obama, we saw this with Bill Clinton. How much longer are black people supposed to wait to get some type of concessions from the Democratic Party? Well, now President Biden is facing another online dragging for suggesting that he convinced Strom Thurmond to vote for the Civil Rights Act of 1963. Let's watch. But pause for just a moment. I thought things had changed. I was able to literally, not figuratively, talk Strom Thurmond into voting for the, for the Civil Rights Act before he died. And I thought, well, maybe there's real progress. But hate never dies. It just hides. It hides under the rocks. Just a few problems there. Uh, Strom Thurmond did not vote yes for the Civil Rights Amendment. Biden didn't become a <laughs> senator until 1973. Um, is this, uh, I, you know, he has these gaffes sometimes, um, remembering things that didn't happen or in vastly different circumstances than they did. Um, are, is this, is this passing muster? Are people, you know, believing the claims he's making about his own, you know, uh, uh, history in in crafting civil rights uh, legislation? Single-handedly freeing uh, Nelson Mandela from jail. <laughs> <laughs> What's next? He, uh, he declared the Emancipation <laughs> Proclamation, I think, I think. Did you know that Joe Biden actually delivered me as a baby? Oh, well, that was nice of him. <laughs> it's funny. There's this funny uh, Twitter account that's um, tr it's photoshops Trump very convincingly in all these old photos. They go, oh, that was Trump with George Washington. Washington at the, you know, <laughs> battle of whatever. Uh, this is like kind of Biden's equivalent of that. He should get a meme team together to, to, to bear out some of these claims. But I think this is the reason why some people are more, you know, attracted to a Donald Trump for president than Joe Biden. This is what I've heard from people because they feel like Trump is more real. Uh, he's more raw, which is not something that the establishment from either party actually once revealed. One of the things that I've noticed, the fact that Donald Trump, his support continues to increase every time he receives another indictment, and also particularly with African-American voters, they're starting to see through this. They're like, how many times are they going to try to come after this guy? There's also the issue of the police purposely targeting people to try to take them down. That really does resonate with a lot of African-American voters. 
So I think these indictments actually, instead of hurting Donald Trump, they're actually helping Donald Trump. And I think that's something that the Democratic Party really needs to understand. I think they thought that this would work in their favor, but it's not working in their favor. If you look at Donald Trump's poll numbers, he was much lower before the indictment started. And now he just continues to increase and increase. And I've seen multiple videos and I've talked to multiple people who are African-American that said this time around they will support Donald Trump. And so this is what happens when the Democratic Party tries to rely on the Republican Party is so bad, so vote for us. Eventually, you're going to run out of steam with that message. If you're not delivering something for the people, the people will eventually turn away. So, Abby, do you think that either Donald Trump or Joe Biden have an agenda for working class and poor people in this country? Not really. I think that people, in my opinion, I think that people should leave both parties. I think mm. that they're both corporate and they support their donors. They support uh, Wall Street and the military industrial complex. And as long as you have those two, those those two items hanging over both of those parties, it's going to be really hard for things to change uh, for working class people. But that being said, what I've seen, it, it seems like particularly in the Democratic Party, even those politicians that said they would fight for those issues for working class people, once Democrat leadership says the opposite, they go in line with the Democrat leadership. So that's a big part of the problem. Whereas in the Republican Party, there are people that are willing to push back on Republican leadership. And we've seen that display during uh, the Kevin McCarthy uh, speakership. So I think that that is a little bit of a difference there. But at the end of the day, they're, they're both corporate. So we have to find a way to break away from corporate money and electoral politics. We want to see real substantial change. Mm. Sabrina, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll have more Rising right after this. Well, the moment you've all been waiting for is here. The coveted O.J. Simpson endorsement has come in. The former NFL star turned accused uh, murderer is throwing his support behind none other than Vivek Ramaswamy. Let's hear what he had to say. This morning I got up and I found myself watching Meet the Press. They had the Babak Ramaswamy on. Now, just like the um, debates, the Republican debates, I said, hey, this guy is on to something. I do have this book. I've only got like 30% into the book. But I love what he was saying in this book. I was saying it's fresh. It's new. Uh, uh, I got a little problem with his uh, foreign affairs take, you know, uh, that I I saw in doing the debate, uh, but he's young. Uh, I honestly think if, uh, if this guy untie that knot, that for whatever reason uh, he has that associates him with some of these other uh, Republicans, if he just untie it, stick with the things that he was saying in his book, and if he um, got himself a, an experienced person to run with him, an experienced person, I would say, like Nikki Haley, somebody that knows foreign affairs, <laughs> this guy would have a chance. Maybe a team of rivals, the Vake, Nikki Haley ticket. They don't seem to like each other very much, but uh, it would win uh, OJ's support. Very interesting. Uh, OJ says later that he's uh, not a Republican, not a Democrat. He's actually closest to being a libertarian. Like yours truly, but um, but uh, maybe with a not quite libertarian foreign policy is what it sounds like. That's great. Uh, all he needs is a few million more O.J. Simpsons, and he could ride the wave to the White House. <laughs> I did. I I I 
can hear a note of sarcasm in your voice, Brianna. I, I don't know what to say. You just want the best person. Is that what he, he says something along mm -hmm. those lines? The best person for what? The best person who's going to cut the taxes of a multimillionaire like O.J. Simpson? Well, then you probably should vote for someone like Vivek Ramaswamy or someone in the Republican Party, generally speaking. That's a safe bet. If you are a millionaire and you want to exclusively vote in your best interest, you should 100 percent keep voting for corporate members of both parties, but specifically the Republican Party tends to do more in terms of tax cuts for the rich because they don't have an interest in maintaining social programs. So you're going to get things like Trump's $1.7 trillion tax cut that enormously added to the deficit, and 80, what, 83 percent of every, every, every 83 cents of every dollar went to the 1 percent. Fantastic. You're going to want to get corporate Democrats going, too, who do things like the uh, COVID uh, relief bill that was the largest upward tra transfer of wealth in American history. You saw the PPP loans go out to uh, Kanye West and Jared Kushner and all of these millionaires. And then you saw the student debt policy get shuttled, uh, sc scuttled uh, for working people and kids that were too poor to be able to pay for college out of pocket. So I agree. That's, that's great. But if you talk in these vague terms and you have no actual politics, then you're, you're going to make these kinds of choices. Or is it, is it good for you? Is it good for rich people? Is it good for poor people? Is it good for working people? Is it good for the environment? Is it good for foreign policy? But, I mean, you don't. You obviously don't have any politics, any like sense of political understanding or analysis. And I don't mean that in a patronizing way, but like, I don't like Vivek's foreign policy takes. Do you understand Vivek's foreign policy take? Do you understand the idea of wanting to be an anti-war candidate? Why would you imagine someone like Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley could ever run together on the same ticket when the, the, the reason that Vivek is popular at this moment is exactly that foreign policy take? It's the best thing about him, where, from you know, my subjective view as a progressive, whereas Nikki Haley has the exact opposite total investment in the blob sort of a view. I mean, like... I don't, I just, it is frustrating to me. It's frustrating to me when there are views like this that are bandied about. I mean, and this is kind of like a joke and whatever. Nobody really cares what O.J. Simpson thinks. Although I've heard a lot of people, not just O.J. Simpson, I've heard a lot of people have that reaction from the debate that they liked Vivek best and they liked yeah. Nikki Haley it's, best. It's and I, I, too, have said, but they have totally contradictory right. views, And but it's about something beyond because that. Because I think that our public education system, the media, should be explaining the real-world consequences of what people believe and what they're advocating for from a policy perspective in a way that wouldn't make it so easy to confuse why you would like two different people. Does, do people ever ask folks to rank their priorities? It's okay to have different priorities. It's okay to say, I personally value foreign policy less and therefore I like Nikki Haley because of other things she has, has to offer, to say mm -hmm. I, I care about the environment but I like foreign policy more and therefore I like Vivek Ramaswamy. Those are perfectly legitimate um, arguments to make. But what frustrates me when I hear things like what O.J. Simpson has said, or more, here's a better example, some recent statements from Oliver Anthony, the singer of Richmond, North of Richmond. He recently tweeted, people crying about burning coal, but not the poor souls digging it. I reckon there's been a good many men in the grave trying to keep our houses lit and like talking about how the, the plight of uh, coal workers is so terrible. But many leftists pointed out the exact same people who are upset about the environment are the ones that are trying to get you universal health care, be able to not have you subject yourself to black lung and early death because you're doing the kind of job that is no longer beneficial without well, said, government I mean, subsidies. He, I don't know what the 
Uh, no, it's not, not a I'm hypocrisy not. dig on him. He said it. He said he was upset that they used his song and said that he was talking about the people on stage. So I he's know. not really I, trying I, to associate himself. I'm not himself upset with him. With I, I don't think cause. he's a conservative, but I'm not trying to ding him as a conservative. But this tweet is incoherent because what what it does. I'm not upset with him. Which, I'm tweet? Upset, Which tweet is it? The tweet I just read about that. Why are the people the same people who are are mad at the, at the environment? People's crying about burning coal, but not the poor souls digging it. It's literally the same people. It's literally, if you, there was a movement not too long ago in a presidential campaign by a guy named Bernie Sanders where the idea of a green transition was about having good paying jobs for people who don't want to go down to those hell pits anymore just because it's the only job in their state that can support families and that actually wanted to give them health care that they so desperately need and dental care that people so desperately need and address the opioid crisis, which people so desperately need. And so what is going on? I'm not mad at Oliver Anthony here, but what is the political education going on? on, where people aren't aware that there is a way that you can marry all of these interests, where you feel like working class people aren't being taken care of and that they're being looked down their nose at by elites. All that's true. So who's actually offering a prescription for that? There are folks willing to do it and who have an anti-war message and who have been consistently anti-war since before it was popular to do so to get votes in the 2024 primary. Maybe that is an answer, although they're not going to do very much for this guy's health care and, and, and coal issues, although you would stop some of the subsidies for uh, dirty would, energy, which would be a good idea. Let them compete in the open free market and have less government management of this whole system. Yeah. So it's not about Oliver Anthony. It's um, not about O.J. Simpson in particular. Vivek's, so Vivek's book, Got mentioned by uh, by OJ. Yeah. Uh, so this book, I assume he's referring to this book, Woke Inc., yeah. which is about uh, you know is trying to do that dance of of Republicans being very mad actually at corporations these days for their for their perception that they're you know the like the Dylan Mulvaney stuff right the, that they're. Uh, virtue signaling to progressive values, and this is very annoying to conservatives, but conservatives also, I mean, those who are not genuine populists but are still, you know, in, in the free market school, don't actually want more regulation against, um, against corporations in general, although they're very upset with the things that they're doing. So how do we find some way to be mad about corporations or have some policy recommendation that doesn't violate our core principles? And I haven't read the entire book. I, I think Vivek puts a lot of it on ESG, which is a kind of, uh, it has a regulatory component, is being some, I mean, it's being embraced by corporations, but it's not totally voluntary, and pushing back on that is the solution to get, like, wokeness out of the corporate space. Um, as, as best I know, it sounds like OJ was enjoying that. Uh, How long has ESG been around? Because I didn't, I don't think I've heard those letters until well, it's this Well, it's been year. a long, it's been around a long time, but it hasn't become a, a, a big thing until, what, the last, like, three years? How long has corruption been around? I mean, since the dawn of human history. So if you fall for the idea that some letters that you never heard of a year ago are the cause of all of the corruption and despair, both in, in, in uh, Wall well, Street I, and not. in... Well, Capitol Hill. I don't I think mean, that's what's being. It's, it's so not, ridiculous. But the corruption is not what's being. It's it's the look. It's the I don't care about ESG. Wokeness. I don't know what it is. I, I don't really care. Get rid of it tomorrow. Guess what? We still have a corrupt I po political you, system. I thought you would appreciate this. I'm a, <laughs> it's so ridiculous. A friend of mine texted me this. That uh, this is a screenshot of an article um, that a South the uh, the CEO of Southwest Southwest Airlines got a seventy six percent pay increase this year. And uh, Southwest, in a regulatory filing, said that, yes, the all the cancellations negatively affected executives' bonuses, but added, 
This is a quote. With respect to ESG initiatives, including DEI and sustainability, the board determined that the company performed above target level expectations. <laughs> Look, get rid we've talked here and route against DEI. <laughs> well, over we and talked over, over, and over and over again about all but, sorts no, of stuff. I, I don't. Yes, I, that wasn't a qualitative statement. That okay. was just a description statement. The, my, the point being that you're, you're, there's always something wrong in the world. But I think people should be very suspicious of folks that manage to come up with new boogeymen every single week when the old boogeyman has been sitting there ruining your lives since forever. If you get rid of ESG, what is your life going to look like? That Southwest guy might have a, a, have to come up with a new justification for why he gets a bonus, but he always gets a bonus. Yeah. He always gets a bonus because well, there's not actually policies that are addressing the gap. But I'm not going to give any more subsidies or bailouts to the airline industry or any other industry. Would be my solution there. Yeah. Also, I would reduce them again the mandatory um, how many freaking hours that pilots have to train to be in line with Europe, and we can have more pilots and we can have more flights. I think that people who work for the airline industry should use their labor power to make sure that they are not working shifts that are so long that it endangers the public, that the profits well, we're not are, gonna have more flights if we do that. That the profits are put back into the business, because that was one of the key drivers of the big grounding of airplanes last holiday season, where what, a million, two million people were grounded in an unprecedented moment that has largely been wiped away from the news landscape as though it never happened. Um, they had old equipment, scheduling computer equipment, because they were doing all of these payouts to CEOs and dividends to shareholders instead of investing back in the business to actually make your commutes better. They're putting the seats closer together and giving you smaller and smaller bag bags of snacks and cutting corners for the consumer experience because as a direct consequence of economic choices to pursue endless growth and profit and dispersing to shareholders and CEOs as opposed to actually making businesses better for consumers. They need more competition. They need more pressure to make the business better for consumers. Well, they're not, you're not going to get that either because they've bought off it's impossible to government pilot. and there's no, anti, there's no antitrust. Well, all right. We'll have more rising right after this. Tell us what you think uh, about uh, the OJ endorsement and the topics we've discussed in the comments. In an expletive-riddled rage, motorists in Washington, D.C. angrily confronted a group of climate activists who were blocking their passage on the highway this Saturday. Let's watch. We got to go to we got kids to feed, me. We got kids to feed. What the are they doing? Nothing. Meanwhile, over in Nevada, law enforcement plowed a police truck into a blockade set up blocking road access to a Burning Man, fe Burning Man festival. Let's watch. In response to their blockade being destroyed, the group Climate Defense tweeted yesterday, 
Words fail. Words utterly fail. Today, a police truck plowed into a peaceful climate blockade. These are the people entrusted to keep us safe. These are the people we have granted a monopoly on the use of force. How is this okay? The group, however, is not finding, well, some people aren't sympathetic. A lot of other people are. Texas Senator Ted Cruz responded, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Let me offer you some free advice. Don't try this in Texas. Is that a proportionate response, plowing a police truck through a blockade, um, blocking the entrance to a Burning Man festival? Most people I saw online seem to think so. Um, I mean, however it's handled, it has to be handled. You don't have a right to just, like, occupy the road. So both these videos were trending all well, day. Well, however it's handled is a big waving away. That's precisely the issue. Should the way it was handled be to drive a police truck through, sending the blockade kind of spinning in a way that made human beings have to jump out of the way, is that the best way that the police should be handling what looked like a pretty low... Uh, intensity situation there. I mean, low intensity, but people were, if you saw more of the footage, like the the backlog of cars, you know, maybe some, some cars don't have AC, it's really hot out. Um, there have been other examples well, of environmental protests. If they're going to Burning protests. Man, they're about to be uh, exposed to many more elements out in the world than they are in their they car. Have water in their cars. There have been other, there have been medical emergencies that climate protesters are in the way of because you can't get past them on the highway. But in this, this instance sure. we're talking about here, black, I don't have any so, problem with the police so much running of the, over the barrier. Oh, wait a minute, this is important. This is important. So much of the argument is there's real people on their way to work, mm -hmm. there's medical emergencies, you're doing it the wrong way. Yeah, 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 I care about the climate, but you're doing it the wrong way. In this instance, they went to a low stakes event, burning, a Burning Man festival. It's a pure entertainment venue. Obviously the people who wanna go, wanna go. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems like the critique is still there, which suggests to me that the critique isn't that you're doing it the wrong way. It's that you think that there should be no inconvenience ever in the, in the effort to protest um, climate catastrophe. People should not block the road for climate-based activism or any activism-based anything. It's really annoying and people hate it. I would hate it. I would probably react with a similar amount of wrath if uh, you got in my way on my way to anything, and that's the normal. Like in that other video, you see, I think I tweeted that, like, this is, I love how this is bringing America together. You have, there's a white woman, there's a black man, there's an Indian man, there's a Hispanic man, everybody coming together in their rage over protesters who get in your way on the street. Like, um, you know, why do that? Um, and then they, the ones in Nevada, they, they, get, they get arrested and they start like screaming, they're like, no, we're, we're, we're nonviolent, we're not violent, we're not, that doesn't mean you're not gonna get like arrested for being in the street. Um, and they also like, they, they, they accused, uh, they, they, they're yelling at the police for, you know, the, these are the people who have a monopoly on the use of force. I mean, they're monopolizing the road by being in the way. And it seems a very unsympathetic group and the reaction I was seeing on social media was furious condemnation. So and in fact, I was seeing that like, even even more out there things like run them over is a reaction a lot of people have. Obviously, you shouldn't yeah. run them over and you shouldn't. They, they came very close to being run over. It's curious. Um, in South Carolina, Heather Heyer, obviously, um, who was part of people protesting the uh, racist and anti-Semitic protests that were happening there shortly after Trump was elected, was run over uh, and killed I mean, in that protest. Well, there is a, a lot of a lot of fervor, a lot of people who feel very entitled to run people over who they disagree with politically, and unfortunately there are some members of the police who share that view. I do think that tax dollars should be spent. If you need to restrain these people, you know, to dismantle their barricade, 
I think there's a lot of ways that people could go about doing it that don't involve um, running them over. You asked as a kind of, you said kind of rhetorically as an aside in there, why? Why do this? Well, that is really the bigger issue here. Why are they doing this? And when you have statistics like the fact that air pollution alone kills 10 million people a year, um, you know, numbers of deaths that are multi many times more than what we have seen in terms of deaths and wars, even the most horrible tragedies that we've experienced in our human history, uh, genocides and holocausts around the world, then I do think that there is a question about why something like the 10 million people who die every year from climate, uh, from air quality, just air quality issues, not other climate change aspects, um, get less of a headline than people standing on a road. And I think that's exactly why they do it. It's almost the only way you can get any kind of climate news to trend. There was another huge tr climate story, actually, that developed last week. Um, I think we have the clip of it now. It involved a another climate protest. Perhaps you'll like the way that this one was carried out. It was done it's at a— It's painting, I won't. It was uh, people who— uh, attended a fundraiser in Nantucket with the Massachusetts governor, Maura Healey. And you saw, you see how quickly donors get angry, even Democratic donors get very angry when confronted with their hypocrisy on dealing with the climate crisis. Let's watch. There is no future. The fossil fuel industry bought you out. The fossil fuel industry gave you $50,000. And fossil fuels more and fossil fuels. fossil fuels. So we got, I don't mind if you die. The gentleman who said, I've been a climate activist for longer than you've been alive. It turns out he's a lobbyist who lobbies on behalf of the fossil fuel industry. And this is at a Democratic fundraising event, a she-she in Nantucket, by the very party that claims to care about climate issues. So I really, this is the same um, organization, Climate Defense, uh, who put this video out, and I think who, who did this protest. So they're trying a lot of techniques all over the Do place. Do you think any of this is helping? This video went very viral, and it's but quite— But uh, attention is not—I mean, you can easily go viral. Is the attention positive? It's everybody— Yeah, so what I was saying was that the these are Democratic representatives who people elected for the purpose of addressing the climate crisis, who are able to hide behind the veneer of being better than the Republican Party on these issues, who are clearly indifferent to the claims that they say that they care about, that they run on, fundraise on, and get elected on. Is This is probably the most important issue of our time, and the political— the, the corporate duopoly has absolutely no investment in resolving it, as is revealed in stark realism by a video like this and a protest like this. And the fact that Joe Biden and the whole Democratic Party are able to leverage people's legitimate concerns about the climate crisis into votes when they fundamentally are unwilling to do anything about the root causes of this crisis, inviting oil donors, uh, oil lobbyists like this to their fundraisers is exactly the kind of exposure we need to have more accountability in our democratic system, in my humble opinion. Mm. Well, you know, um, disrupting the afternoons of 
wealthy political elites and lobbyists and donors is, you know, whatever. It did, right? There's less sympathy well, there. Well, Robbie, it seems like both ways. Getting in the way of you, you seem to think road. it doesn't work either way. So it, it, I don't know how people can have much of an argument for weighing in on the strategies that climate protesters use when there seems to be a kind of hand-waving indifference about whether or not they go to the source and protest at a Shishi elite event in Nantucket, or if they sit in front of Burning Man, which is hardly exactly... I mean, if I want the Burning Man, I'd be annoyed, too. But I'm much more annoyed by 10 million human beings losing their lives, preventable lives, uh, each year. And estimates are that these numbers could go up to 150 uh, million lives if it's not... Um, if we if we avoid these kind of climate cliffs and cutoffs that we've been warned about for several years. So, you know, I, we wouldn't be having this conversation if not for those oh-so-annoying kids at Burning Man. So I know they've gotten a lot of criticism on the Internet, but I want to say very clearly that my subjective opinion, Brianna Joy Gray, is that I'm very supportive of their actions, and I'm grateful that they're fighting for my future and any um, young people's future. Well, my subjective opinion is that I think their policies are bad and would kill millions more people than um, What's the evidence of that? To. That climate um, policy would kill millions of people. We need technological innovation to lift people out of poverty, as has happened over the last century. What climate policy specifically do you think would kill millions of people? What climate this is what Vivek do you think said. is going to save millions of people? Uh, not having these air quality... Ending nuclear energy? Ending... I, I am not against... I did but not what say are they I wanted fighting to end what do they nuclear want? energy. What change do they want? I support making... Carbon emissions are causing global warming, methane emissions. It's 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 the uh, air the quality standards. What is the U.S. Going, is going to do to limit China's carbon emissions and no, India's No, China and America need to work together in India on all of these things. It's America who has historically, under Donald Trump, withdrawn from these climate agreements. Because China isn't going to do its part. That is not why Donald Trump withdrew Absolutely. from the Paris Climate Why does it Accords? fall on Americans to do everything? Cli Donald Trump doesn't believe in climate change. He said it's a Chinese hoax. I support some kind of carbon um, trading policy that their environmental, free market environmentalist people Those don't do. work. I mean, they, we try the, they don't work. What people, do you mean they don't work? They don't work because people are, um, it, it, there was just an, actual, an article about this today. The policies haven't demonstrated to have the effect of actually bringing down the cost of emissions. It's very difficult to track exactly what people are saying that they're paying for in terms of offsets. And it's what it's done is constructively offset into the future, kick the can down the road of being able to meet these technical requirements that liberals put out there because they claim to care about climate change. Well, look, I support ending all our subsidies to the fossil fuel industry and every other environmental industry or energy sector and, ba and everything else. And as uh, I think Michael Schellberger says when we have him on the show, moving gradual, moving from uh, coal to to uh, to um, uh, natural gas to nuclear and other options is natural a gas good policy doesn't in help the, you in terms of uh, from a pollution a good, perspective, and it also has a lot of horrible impacts on a lot of working class communities of, of all backgrounds. No, but we can't go back to the Stone Ages. We can't, like, well, we Well, good need thing that nobody's advocating for that. Except those people. No, they're not. And people should go to Climate Defense and read more from a policy perspective of what they actually are advocating for. Well, if people find their histrionic actions persuasive, I guess then they'll get on board those policies. We'll have more rising right after this. The site
website GoFundMe has indefinitely frozen donations to the independent media outlet, the Gray Zone, left-leaning independent media outlet, due to external concerns, according to the Gray Zone. GoFundMe's actions follow a, quote, campaign of repression against the media outlet's personnel by the British and Ukrainian governments. GoFundMe has reportedly frozen all money raised in the Gray Zone's recent fundraiser to provide more permanent positions to some of the outlet's regular contributors. Mm. On August 19th, the Gray Zone asked to know why GoFundMe has refused to authorize the transfer of funds they raised, and a member of the site's trust and safety team, naming themselves as Sabrina, reportedly emailed the following statement. Our number one goal here is ensuring that the money from GoFundMe fundraisers always gets to the right place, so we really appreciate you helping us to make sure GoFundMe is a safe place to give. Due to some external concerns, we need to review your fundraiser to make sure it complies with our terms of service. Please keep in mind that our processes are followed to ensure your own safety. I'll keep you updated as soon as possible. <clears throat> Excuse me. Over $90,000 from 1,100 contributors is now in the balance. Obviously, this is something we've seen before with, um, I believe, the Canadian trucker mm -hmm. protests and a whole host of other things. Um, this is deeply concerning. Um, right? And th them citing their terms of service, that like nobody reads that. That's obviously BS. Um, you know, these are supposed to be platforms for raising money for causes. The money is raised, right? And now they're saying we're not going to give it to limbo. you. People gave that money for a specific reason, right? They gave it to for, clearly for this outlet to pay out these people. And now the company wants to say, no, uh, obviously that's wildly unethical. What we what we need to learn more about and would not at all surprise me to discover is that this was not—we don't know, but it would not at all surprise me if this was not freely chosen by GoFundMe, but whether they've had conversations with the State Department or, or you know, British officials or intelligence um, saying that this is like a pro-Russian uh, organization, obviously because it's the viewpoints of the, the people on it. We've had them on the show many times, you know, depart from Western, yes, U.S., a, British a, orthodoxy on what to do. It's a, a assuredly anti-imperialist news org that frequently is critical of the U.S. military establishment, including figures like uh, Victoria Newland, and architects of much of the last— 20 years of U.S. Uh, imperial practice. And so it is routinely described as a Putin puppet organization, similarly characterized as much of RT, but it, it's not RT. It's not even like superficially like Russia Today was like literally a Russian um, broadcast. This is a completely independent news broadcast, and it needs its funding to fund the kind of journalism it does. It's more vulnerable to these kind of attacks than, say, if some corporate outlet gets throttled by a YouTube algorithm or, or what have you. That's also bad, obviously. But I do think independent news is uniquely valuable. Uh, sorry, uniquely vulnerable yes. because it is uniquely, it's uniquely valuable. valuable and uniquely vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, obviously, we've done reporting. We featured reporting by um, Lee Fong and, uh, and Lee oh. Fong describing the action, the flagging of outlets like the Gray Zone that have been critical of the U.S. intervention being flagged as misinformation by Ukrainian officials, Ukrainian officials uh, using their power to leverage the, both the State Department and the social media companies themselves to say, you should take this down because it's misinformation or it's, you know, it's, again, we hear that this is a Russia, this is a Putin narrative, even if it's true, even right. if it's just like a straightforward evaluation of the current state right. of the war, it's being described as, as some Putin emboldening narrative. Um, so I would not... I, in fact, I would be surprised to learn that that kind of thing is not going on at all here. Yeah. I mean, my, I, I think this is 
a horrible thing to happen. At the same mm -hmm. time, I do think it's instructive to, for people to recognize that we waste so much energy characterizing the onslaughts on independent media by partisan bias when it's really about independence. It's, it's, it's not left, right, it's top down. Mm -hmm. And there is all, this is part of what my frustration was with the Twitter files because I think it was so important, but the choice to frame it as an attack on the right when it was attack on vulnerable media organizations that were not treading the State Department line made it easier for mainstream, predominantly liberal news mm -hmm. to ignore it. My, my interest in having it characterized more neutrally was not just, oh, I want to make sure the left gets its time in the sun, but, but from personal experience with having a long record of working with and learning from reporters like those at the Gray Zone and other organizations who were repeatedly throttled on social media before like under the Jack regime and under the Elon Musk regime, and to the extent that we should all be joining forces to fight back against this, acting as though this, the real issue people should care about is a pogrom against the right, when there are right-leaning actors, we saw this from the Twitter files, that Trump tried to target and get things taken down and get his agenda passed on YouTube, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Twitter and stuff as well that it's going to be a recurring problem unless we get to the root of it and stop acting like I'm only interested in the story mm -hmm. insofar it shows that the right is being victimized or the left is being victimized. It's the bottom, the organizations that are closer to reflecting the interest and the will of the people that are getting victimized by those who control all the power at the top. When uh, PayPal had a similar thing, I can't remember exactly, it was something they said, it said they would withhold funds you put in there if, uh, if, if, for if, if they're being used yeah. as more misinformation. And then it was walked back a little bit, at least, mm -hmm. after, um, after, you know, Cover, co coverage from our, our show and others, um, consumer outrage. You know, if you're if you're a user of of GoFundMe, of PayPal, of things like this, you know, you need to speak up and say, I'm not going to participate in this. This is this is ridiculous. This is absurd. I'm not going. You know, when we when we use these these platforms to transact money, that's it's you know with a implicit, if not explicit, idea that they're going to randomly seize the money yeah. and not give it where it's supposed to go, or or in, especially in service of a, like a specific political foreign policy agenda that, again, that the, that, the, that, the, that the gray zone doesn't support and that the people giving it money clearly don't support. They're not confused about what they're giving money to, yeah. right? No one, no one is no. paying Max Blumenthal's salary with any ambiguity about the I, views I, he holds, I thought right? the gray zone was uh, Brown and Dre Gray's uh, secondary publication. <laughs> no, although I have joked that that would be the, sh the title of my uh, hypothetical MSNBC show. The gray zone. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I think that that's right. And that is part of why I got to say, as much as I you know, deeply disagree with the politics of uh, Kanye West and the uh, anti-Semitic marks that he right, made last year. Right, what happened to him was Being disturbing. fully debanked by J.P. Morgan, we're in a situation where federally backed, enormous banks are in a position where they can just say, no, we don't want to work with you. That mm -hmm. is, that is, I would argue, uh, an overreach in terms of the extent to which they should be making these decisions based on their personal preferences, because they certainly didn't have any problem working with Jeffrey Epstein I was for say, all of those years. Yeah, maybe they moved the person from the Kanye account onto the Jeffrey <laughs> Epstein account. <laughs> all right, well, we will certainly continue uh, following that. Hopefully, uh, we'll have an update with some resolution in that situation. Uh, again, there is always a possibility it was some kind of mistake or thing like that that does happen. Obviously, seems pretty politically uh, motivated in this case, but um, we'll 
follow that still. Um, we can keep playing the, the end of the end of show music. I was I was coming to a closing point. Tomorrow on Rising, we'll take a look at how Sweden fared during the pandemic. The country notoriously had a starkly different handling of the COVID-19 virus. So we're going to check in on the scoreboard with respect to that. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Bye-bye.